Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, January 9th. Listen to the melodies birds sing. They express a happiness that is latent everywhere in nature. Reflect then, you too are a part of that happiness. It is the first little cheep of omnipresent joy. Cheep, not like E-A-P, but cheep, cheep. The first little cheep, cheep of omnipresent joy. I... Uh, I've always felt a, a certain attunement with the Native Americans, the indigenous people on the land of North America where the USA is now. Um, I, at different times in my life, I've really immersed myself in biographies, and I've never, I've never actually practiced any of the of the modern, of, of the current, you know, uh, Native American practices, rituals, and so on like that. I, I came to my my final spiritual path, my one true home, very early in life, and I've never had the slightest inclination to explore everything else, anything else. So my, uh, my relationship to Native American practices is almost, in a sense, intuitive from past lives, because I just, I just feel that I, I sort of understand it, I know it, and I've studied, as I said, I've read biographies, and I remember somebody gave me a wonderful calendar of, of photographs of, of Native Americans that were taken. And they were um, just the noblest, most wonderful faces, just absolutely beautiful. And for the first 16 years of my spiritual life, I moved to Ananda village. It was just Ananda at that time, in 1971. And I moved to the most remote section of the community at that time, which was the meditation retreat which was six miles back on a dirt road, no electricity, no modern conveniences, so to speak, of any kind, except we actually had water. We had a well and a water tower. Um, I lived very, what you would call primitively, I would rather say simply, but it was primitive. I had a little trailer that was my own, and the trailer was really just a small wooden box with a few amenities inside. I carried water in gallon jugs from the water tower, which wasn't too far away. I just bring them down. I had a little propane burner. Um, I took bucket baths for years. I had long hair and I washed my hair in the bucket, in the hot water bucket bath. I was able to boil water and I was able to have propane heat. And both of those things were absolutely essential to my life. I don't think I could have lived less than that, but what I had was, was all that I needed. And Living like that, and my trailer was just, we just pulled it back into a, uh, back into a, a place, you know, just under a tree is what I mean. We had these sort of dirt roads here and there, and we just, I just pushed it back there. It was not in a neighborhood of any kind. It was just in the middle of the forest. And because it was just this, literally a thin layer of plywood between me and the outside world, with no electric wiring, I mean, I didn't know until I moved away. I moved from San Francisco into into that place and 
I had never really even been camping in my life. I just lived in suburbia. But I, I took to the lifestyle almost instantly. And discovering how calming it was to live outside of electricity since, the, since I lived that way about 10 years. So in the early 80s, I moved into a house that we built that had electric wiring, and I've lived that way ever since. But honestly, the presence of electric wiring changes the whole dynamic of, of your environment. I wouldn't have known that until I had a lot of experience. So living in that little trailer as I did, propane lights, um, I just, we were so close to the natural world. Um, we, we didn't have, we, we had outhouses, we didn't have indoor plumbing. And you think an outhouse would be enormously inconvenient. But what it actually did is it takes you outside and out of your home at many odd hours that you would not be going out anyway. And in winter we had a lot of rain and we had a lot of snow. And if nature called you in the middle of the night, you just went outside. So, you know, I would be in the, in the snow at midnight, which I would never have done willfully. But I was so happy when it, you know, when it was uh, forced upon me, is the way I would put it. And, and again, without the electric wiring, and with just a thin layer of plywood, I don't think my trailer was even insulated. If it was insulated, I think it was just wooden. It was just a little wooden trailer, a little travel trailer, you know. I don't know what you would call it, maybe 15, 20 feet at the most. And, uh, and just a little wider than my two outstretched arms and a little shorter than if I tried to raise my hand doing the energization exercise. You had to bend your wrist a little. You couldn't, I couldn't, and I'm not very tall. I couldn't lift my hand all the way up because I hit the ceiling. But there was just no, there was no real barrier between me and the natural world. And it was, it was during the time that I lived like that, that the, what I would call the samskars of the indigenous people, and there had been Indian tribes on the very land that I was living on. And just this feeling of, what I would actually call it is, I would call it an understanding of that way of living. I know that people now go into those rituals and that they, many people draw a great deal from them. Um, but I could also see how, what an integrated reality it was. Because when you're living that close to nature, it really, literally, nature begins to talk to you. Here, I say here because I live in Silicon Valley now, uh, fortunately in the Palo Alto area, you can actually get to to um, not certainly not to wilderness, but you can get to natural areas. You can get down to the shore, you can get to the ocean, you can get up into the hills, and there's been a huge ecological movement in this area to preserve open space. So there's lots of places that are, that are owned by the open space company, whatever that is, which means they will never be developed, which is wonderful because you can get out of, to a large extent, out of civilization. But nonetheless, I come back into it here. I live with electricity and I live in this, you know, I live with cars, I lived with paved roads. And even though the animals still persist, we have a family of possums that wanders around here and occasional raccoons and birds, lots of birds, lots of squirrels. We have a Cooper's hawk, which actually keeps the squirrel population down because all of our fruit trees, uh, all the fruit we were growing, we were growing it for all the squirrels. And it was sort of a problem. And then, as I say, we got a hawk, or rather a hawk discovered us. And ever since we've had a hawk, 
we have a better balance between the squirrels and our fruit trees. And, and he comes, and I have a little fountain out in the back, and the hawk comes, usually as often as once a week, and we'll just take a little bath. So I get to see him. But I'm seeing him out the window, and I'm you know, standing at my sink with hot running water in my kitchen, looking out at the Cooper's hawk, but it's better than not. But what I really understood, and I, I have been able to get back into it, when I lived all those 16 years in uh, so close to nature, I, I never, ever wanted to come back. I lived 10 years without amenities and then another six in a, in a pleasant house, but still in the forest. But then Swami Kriyananda asked me to move to Silicon Valley, and it was an appropriate, has been an appropriate ministry for me, so I've accepted without complaint. But I do remember driving down the main street here, El Camino Real, in a car, and just thinking, well, what a different life this is. But when I was, when I have had the opportunity in the last few years to take several long periods of seclusion, I needed to write the book, Light Bearer, that I've referred to many different times, why the big book of my experiences was Swami Kriyananda. I had to be in total seclusion to do that. And in one case, I went to a very isolated place where the nearest neighbor I could see across the valley, but they were at least two miles away. The second time, I was more in a rural neighborhood, but I had a couple of acres that were just mine. Mine, meaning in the house that I was in. And I had a little pond that where, where geese came. And because I was in complete seclusion... And I didn't have internet in either of those places. I got back into my relationship with the natural world. And I remembered again, and this is what I was starting to say about one, one can step into it from the life we live now. But the Native American life was really just, it was so completely integrated with the natural world that everything in the natural world was as much a part of their reality as, as they were themselves. A friend of mine, and this is more recently, she was a school teacher on an Indian reservation. And the young, she taught young children. And one of the things that she had the young children do at a certain point was she had them draw a, a self-portrait. And she said it was remarkable because she'd also taught in uh, traditional American schools. And most children, when they draw a self-portrait, they take the piece of paper and the, their, their, their face or their little stick body or whatever, however they portray themselves, is the picture. And I'm sure if you've been to any elementary school classrooms and you've seen it, they'll post them on the wall and the picture will be the child. On the Indian reservation, she said, I think she said all, if not all, virtually all, of the children, the child was about a, a tenth of the photograph, maybe sometimes a little more than that, but the child was always in context of the place where they lived. The child never pictured himself or herself as separate from the context. They were in front of the forest, they were in front of the the cliff, they were near the mountain, they were by the stream. Whatever part of the natural world was the part that they most identified with, when you say draw a picture of yourself, it had to be included, because there was no self without this other reality. And we have um, much to our detriment just completely lost that. Now, 
this is Dwapara Yuga rising. This is the age of technology. This is not like, it's like God knows what he's doing. So I'm not casting aspersions here. This is a necessary stage that the world is going through as we shift out of, because not speaking of the Native Americans, but Kali Yuga as a whole, it's a very physical age. It's a very limited age in terms of the understanding of energy. And energy is a more refined understanding than just matter. So it's just, this is what happens in a planet. and But we're out of balance. A very interesting thing that Swami Kriyananda said about Master's work, Yogananda coming to America, that there's certain characteristics about Master's work that are actually indigenous to the, to the American soil. And, it, and one of them is attunement with nature. For those of you who are familiar with Yogananda's work, in his poetry and in his music, images from the natural world just abound. That it's, it's just everything. He talks about the sea and the sky and the rivers, and, and in his poetry it's the birds and the flowers and the plants. It just goes on, and the creatures, it just goes on and on. He's always relating to the natural world. Swamiji commented, not only is this spiritually true, it's just as simple as that, but it's also, it's, a, it's, a char- it's characteristic of the American soil because when these great souls or these great civilizations inhabit a physical place, their vibrations are there. So even though it seems as though a lot of that wonderful understanding of our relationship to the natural world has been pushed aside, it's still there and it's pushing through in the ecology movement, Swamiji even said, which I love, that a lot of young people in the ecology movement are basically Native Americans reborn who are really back on their own land and trying to reestablish what it is that they knew that the, that the majority of society... It's not that we don't know it, it's that we have let other values dominate. And, and when we're given the chance, we'll come back to it. But at the present greed for material gain and all kinds of strange things. It's a whole, that is a whole other huge subject. But nonetheless, there is this extraordinary power, uh, this, this extraordinary portal into cosmic awareness that is all around us, that is all around us in the rest of creation besides ourselves. And even in the smallest way, if we turn our attention back toward it, it will speak to us. And so Swami gives us a very small example here. Listen to the birds sing. Listen to the just sort of freedom and the joy with which they, they announce their presence and they announce the dawn every morning. And listen to it, but also feel it. And, and commune with that sound and commune with the little creatures whose hearts are being expressed there. What are you trying to tell me? What is your message? Who are you? How can we be friends? What can we do to work together? Such simple thoughts, but such simple thoughts of such simple thoughts, great revolutions are created within ourselves and on our whole planet. So listen to the melodies birds sing. They express a happiness that is latent everywhere in nature. Reflect then, You too are a part of that happiness. It is the first little cheep of omnipresent joy. Joy to you, my friends.
Our work is made possible by inspired listeners, so if you feel to support ASHA, you can make a one-time donation, or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.